So, today we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And, and I just have to start out just letting you know how much tension I have in just trying to preach this text. This text is, is one of the most written upon, studied, cherished, prayed, memorized text in the history of all of our scriptures, of Christendom. There are literally millions upon millions of books and studies and dissertations done on these few short verses. And when, when I come to this, on the one hand, this passage has, has so much intricacy that I just want to explode it for you. I want to go through every single nuance and detail. I mean, there are, there are technical details in here that I want you all to know about harpagmas and, and, and kenosis and homoousia. And I, I want you all to know the, the history and the linguistics and all of those very, very specific details. Because in this text, seemingly minor, minor details can have vast implications. So uh, have you heard the story about the, the businessman who his wife goes off, he's a wealthy businessman, it's the 1800s, his wife goes off on a European tour. Do you know this story? And she's out there uh, in Europe and at the same time his business kind of heads south and she's out there like shopping and doing all kinds of things in Europe. And she comes to this jewelry shop and she finds this gorgeous diamond and she just says, I have to have this. So this is the 1800s, right? This is when you had telegraphs and wiring. So she goes and she sends a wire to her husband, um, found this beautiful diamond. It cost this much and it was like thousands upon thousands of dollars. Can I buy it? And her husband sends back this message. No, comma, price is too high. But the telegraph operator missed one comma and sent back this message and said, no price is too high. See, this small details can have vast implications, can completely change the message. And when we come to the text that we're coming to today, how you translate the nuance of a word, how you understand it, can be the difference between Jesus being God-like and being God. Between Jesus looking like a human or being a human. It can have vast implications for who we worship. And how we know ourselves and how we know God. So on the one side, I have all these technical expectations and, and millions of pages of literature that I'd love to just download into us. And on the other hand, though, if you look through the text, just, just listen. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant. Like, do, do you hear it? Like, you don't have to be a Greek scholar. You don't have to be a scholar at all to just listen and look at the form of it in your, in your Bible and know immediately that this is not just some prose. This is not some theological fact sheet. It's a song or a poem or, or something. I mean, there's debates over, is it one of the earliest Christian hymns, like a song that Christians actually sung in all the churches? I tend to think that it might have been. But it could have just as been, just as well been a poem that the Apostle Paul wrote. So there's debate over what it is exactly, but no one debates the fact that it is art. And so when we come to this passage, this has to inform how we read the text. You know, song lyrics, poetry, you do not read that like a normal book. 
You don't read it like a Wikipedia article. Song lyrics, poetry. It, it's, it's, it's famously hard to understand. So, Oasis, after all, you are my wonder wall. So, John Lennon, I am the Eggman. You are the Eggman. I am the walrus. Goo goo chickaboo. <laughs> this is my favorite movie. Lewis Carroll. Twas brillig. And the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the waves. What does that mean? I don't know. But I get it. Do you know the difference? When you read poetry, when you hear a song, I don't know what it means, but I get it. And when you come to this text, you cannot know what it means and you can still get it. Because it's beautiful, it's exalted, it's art. You don't just read it and study it, you experience it, you feel it. Like you don't go to a concert to, to have a fact sheet downloaded. You go to a concert to share and the experience, the emotion, the guttural things that can only be shared in art. And this, my friends, is art. Songs, even the stupidest of songs, have a power over us. Physically, emotionally, and dare I say spiritually. So this passage is very, very full of good theological information. And, and, and I want us to be a church that knows sound doctrine. But if that's all we hear in this passage, if it doesn't stir our hearts into some awe, some worship, well, we've missed it. Today, I just, uh, in this tension that I'm feeling, let me say it. On the one hand, I want, to, I want to hit all the technical stuff. On the other hand, it's a work of art, and I want us to experience it. But the fact of the matter is, is, is you know me, I'm going to get into the details. I'm going to explode a bunch of technical stuff. We're going to get into that. And part of that just comes from the fact that I'm just afraid that most of you can't get that on your own, right? But the reason I'm going to explode theological and philosophical details, and we're going to go into the historical nuance, the reason I want to go there is so that when you go home and you open your scriptures and you read it to your kids and you share it with your spouse and you memorize it, you will worship our Lord. All right? So let's open the scriptures. And we're going to look at this passage and read it with our hearts and our minds. Starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Last week, we, 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 I introduced this passage and we said, starting in chapter 1, verse 27, there's, there's a key phrase in there that we need to hang everything that's coming, this whole passage on. And it was in chapter 1, verse 27, the apostle literally calls the Philippians to do this. Live as citizens... Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Citizenship. Last week I made a really big deal about that. I brought up some guy from Zimbabwe. And a guy from England. And a guy from India. And a guy from Philly. And a guy from our, our neck of the woods. And we talked about what does it mean to be a citizen. This, this big concept of citizenship. That it influences everything you do. How you eat. How you sleep. How you live. How you cheer. How you go to the bathroom. I mean Everything. There's nothing not touched by this concept of citizenship. And the Apostle Paul is going to say that we, when we become Christians, our citizenship is no longer, this is a temporary citizenship as Americans or Romans or English or Indian. That our citizenship is now in heaven. And so we need to start thinking 
like citizens of heaven. We need to start think and cheer and act and sleep and speak and spend our money like citizens of heaven. The problem, of course, we talked about is that the Philippians had been citizens of Rome long before they'd been citizens of heaven. And they were still thinking like citizens of Rome. And we came up with this word mind, mind, mindset, phreneo, feelings, your regard, how you view the world. How you view the world should, should come through, you should see it the way Jesus sees it. You should see it through his eyes. Today, the Apostle Paul is going to give us unavoidably, he's going to explain this. Like if, if last week we could kind of hide behind, oh, I'm not quite sure what he means when he talks about having this mindset of Jesus Christ thing. Today, he's going to go in specific, unavoidable detail to let us know this is what it means to think like Jesus, to think like a citizen of heaven. That following Jesus has to change the way you think So let me just read this again. What does it mean to have the mindset of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped? He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, and even death on a cross. So right there I could just stop, and I can summarize this whole sermon with one word, humility. That the Apostle Paul thinks the defining characteristic of Jesus Christ is humility. And he thinks that the defining characteristic of those who follow Christ should be humility. St. Augustine, following this line of thinking, do you guys remember him? We talked about him in the fall. He was asked by a young man, You know, how do I become a Christian? What does it mean to hold on to these truths as a Christian? And he said, well, there's really just three things you need to know. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian and how to grow in your relationship with God, you need to know these three things. Um, The first part is humility. The second, humility. The third, humility. That's it. So, uh, this guy, do you guys know this guy? Thomas Merton. He's a monk and stuff, 20th century guy who wrote a bunch of mystical works and contemplative stuff. Some of it's good. Um, and, and in it, he has this great reflection on humility. He, he says it this way. He says, it is impossible to overestimate the value of true humility and its powerful and its power in the spiritual life. And then he says this, humility contains in itself the answer to all the great problems of the life of the soul. That if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be loving, if you want to be generous, if you want to be faithful, if you want to be, and you just list all the characteristics of what it means to be a good Christian, it starts in humility. How about this great thinker? Muhammad Ali. He once said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. I think there's something to that. Like, we can relate to that, right? Finally, a quote I can relate to. You see, it's hard to be humble. Because humility, humility is so difficult, but it's at the very heart of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul is not going to let us get away from this. That humility, and let's define this, humility, a right view of God and myself. A right view, just a true view of myself in light of God. Humility is devastating to my every attempt to live my life without God. Humility is essential 
to my worship. Humility is devastating to worshiping anything except God. Humility is devastating to my false views of success and self and all the things that we might chase after. In humility, we begin to truly see God as he is in ourselves as we are. So I recently read a biography of a guy named uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Probably, a lot of you have probably heard of him. He was a German theologian and a, a pastor and a conspirator. He was one of the guys who tried to kill Hitler. And he was actually a brilliant theologian in his own right. And in this, he, he, this biography kind of unfolds his life. Like, how did he think? And how did, he, how did he, he make it through these ethical decisions? Because on the one hand, he's a Christian. Absolutely committed Christian. If you know one of his works, it's probably the cost of discipleship. That he was willing to give up everything, even his own life, to follow Jesus. And yet, as a follower of Christ, he's also willing to kill Hitler. Like, how does that work? That's a fascinating question. In it, early in his life, he, uh, he, he shows up to a church, and he's in Paris visiting some friends, and, and it's in the um, red light district of Paris. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a Catholic church. He goes in, sits in the back, and he just sits to watch Mass. And he's shocked. Because as he's sitting there, he sees all these prostitutes filing in with their men. And it, like, really strikes him. And that's when he says this. He says, you know... This must have been what it was like when Jesus was on the earth. Like the type of people who are attracted to Jesus. And he, and he says these words. Let me, let me summarize them for you. He says, you know, I can now imagine a praying murderer. I can imagine that. And I can imagine a praying prostitute. But, you know, the only person I cannot imagine praying to our God is a vain person. Someone who focused on themselves. Humility is at the very heart of the Christian gospel, that God blesses the poor, that he blesses those who mourn, that he fills those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and this, if you're sitting here right now, if you grew up in America at least, this is probably not surprising to you. No one's sitting there being like, what? We're supposed to be humble? If you grew up even in a loosely Christian environment, this makes sense. You recognize that humility is better because it just is. And this is where we get in trouble when we come to our text today. You see, when we come to our text, when we come to our text today, here's the problem. This actually makes sense to us. Here's where we can miss what's actually going on. That is this, what the Apostle Paul says in these few verses is terribly subversive. We come to this message and we think, oh yeah, that's nice, that's beautiful. This is what I want on a coffee mug. This is what every Christian believes. We don't realize that this message is the reason the Apostle Paul's in prison when he's writing this. That this message is why he might possibly face death and someday will die for his faith. That, that we can't see that the Apostle is actually calling the Philippians to stand against their world, their culture, their king, and all the people around them. That this message is radical, subversive, revolutionary. And if we can possibly peel that back a little and see how hard it was for the Philippians to accept this, maybe we can apply it to ourselves and see how hard it might be for us to live it out too. All right, so let's do this. Long before the Philippians were citizens of heaven, they were this, right? 
I showed this picture in the first week. This is a picture of Roman life. And I noticed I had to bleep out half of it. Like it's just inappropriate. Like the Romans were, were, were hopelessly godless, anti-Christian. Like when you think of ancient Rome and, and their citizenship, what it meant to be a Roman citizen, we know that they were untouched by biblical morality. So slavery, pornography, drunkenness, idolatry, these were the cultural norms. Now, the worst part about this, though, is they didn't think that this was not just okay. They thought it was the way of life. Not just a, an option, but the option. Like, they sincerely believed that the best thing they could do as Roman citizens was to export Roman citizenship. To export Rome. To take the world and make it Rome. So, everyone should speak our language. Everyone should do sports like us. Make it Olympics. Everyone should recognize the greatness and glory of, of Rome. That Caesar, the Roman king, is not just another king, one king among many. He's the king of kings. He was considered a god. Do you remember the, uh, the, the, uh, the inscription I've read to you multiple times now? It was 9 BC. It's about the gospel of Caesar. It says, the birthday of the god Caesar Augustus was the beginning for the world of the gospel that has come to men through him. That there was a gospel to be proclaimed. The gospel of Caesar Augustus was that he was smarter, stronger, more attractive than any human who's ever lived. He was a god. And that his title was to be king of kings, lord of lords. He ushered in a new reality, a new kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. That he made wars to cease by crushing everyone. And brought in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So... This is why the policy that people in the vast Roman Empire, every single person had to acknowledge the greatness of Rome, and they did that in the figurehead of Caesar. So when you came, they would force you to submit, and you know what your one confession was to be? If you wanted to be part of us and not die, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So tell me, when the Apostle Paul shows up in this, in Philippi, in this world where Caesar is Lord, they proclaim his gospel, his peace. And he starts singing a little song. Hey, I got this poem, song, I don't know, what do you think it is? And it's about, it's about God, the one true God, who through humility, through death on a cross, is exalted above every name, that every name on heaven and on earth, even, even Nero, your Caesar, he's going to bow his knees and someday he's going to confess Jesus is Lord. Can you see how that might cause some friction? Can you see how there might be a little bit awkward that the Apostle Paul is saying words that are blatantly un-Roman? John Dixon, uh, an Australian Aussie scholar, historian, wrote a book called Humilitas, and it kind of helps unfold how radical these ideas were. Um, in it, let me just give you a, a picture of Roman concept of humility. That how the Roman citizens would have viewed this passage about Jesus Christ, God, dying on a cross. And he says this, humility, humilitas in Latin, was not a virtue in Greco-Roman ethics. Did you know that? It was not. The word meant something like crushed or debased. It was associated with failure and shame. So he goes back and he says, if you go to the, the Delphic canons from 6 BC and you read through all the ethical standards, the kind of the standard work of this is what ethics look like in Greco-Roman world, you will not find 
one reference to humility. The, the, the word itself is missing. In its place was this word philotimia, which literally means love of honor. That you should love being honored. In fact, let's explore this for a minute. This had, there's good logic. The honor or reputation is one of the best things you can have in life. So here's the logic. If we achieve great things, it is only good and proper that we should receive public recognition for it. The achievement deserves public praise. So when you think about humility, there's, in the Roman world, there is, of course, some humility before the gods or before the emperor because they can kill you. But listen, this is a direct quote from Dixon here. He says, humility before an equal or lesser person was morally suspect. It upset the assumed assumption that merit demands honor. Thus, honor was proof of merit. Avoiding honor implied a diminishment in merit. It was shameful. Okay, let's, let's unpack this for a minute. If you don't receive honor as someone who's higher than someone else, it's shameful, it's immoral, it's wrong in the Roman world. And now the Apostle Paul is going to tell us this. You know the God of the universe? You know what he did? He humbled himself. This is going to be beyond bizarre. Let's, let's dive in. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. If you, if you look at this text, it literally says, who being in very form God. Some different translations there, and we could go into all the nuances there, but it really means being in very nature God. And if I'm going to lose you, if I'm going to lose you in today's sermon, I'm going to lose you in the next five minutes. We're going to go philosophy here. So I need you guys to pay extra close attention and, and, and say amen every once in a while. Okay? All right. I, I particularly like the amens when I say a good philosophic point. All right? So we're going to talk about essence and accidents here. All right, yeah, now we're preaching. Okay. Let's, let's, let's talk this out for just a minute here. Who being in very nature, what is the very nature of God? When we talk about the nature of something, we're talking about its essential nature, its essence, what makes it what it is. And the Greek philosophers used to talk about essence and accidents, the things that make it what it is and the things that can be changed about it. Amen. All right, you guys are following me here. So let's, let's put the, uh, I'm going to work hard here to put the cookies on the lower shelf here. I'm even going to give you my little picture here. This, of course, you will immediately recognize as, what is that, friends? A bicycle. I, I really knew that, you know, if I don't go into preaching, I might go into like caricatures or something. Um, so this is a bicycle. Of course it is because of my beautiful drawing. And not only is this a bicycle, we're going to, we're going to say this is a red bicycle. All right. And, and, and on this bicycle, I mean, what should a bicycle have? It should probably have like, I don't know, one of those little funny horns. And here's the big seat. And I, I like the kind of say it should have. Let's put a basket on the back, right? All right, so this is, and here's the pedals, of course. All right, so here is a bicycle right here. Everyone, everyone recognizes that. We all know this is a bike. Now, here's the question. If we start going through this, if we're philosophers back in, in ancient Greece or in ancient Philippi, and we're sitting there, but what is the essence of bikeness? 
What does it mean to be a bike? And so we can start asking questions about a bike. Well, if you take away the basket, is it still a bike? Yes, yes, okay. So, so the basket is not essential, it's accidental. What if we take away the horn? Yeah, okay. What if we take away the handles? I guess this little... Okay. What if we take away the seat? That is a very uncomfortable bike. Uh, but maybe. I don't know. What if we take away the handlebars? Ooh. Now we're getting kind of sticky fuzzy here. I mean, I've seen people ride their bike without handlebars, though. What if we take away the tires? All right, this is not a bike. At that point, you know... So, so here, here's the thing. If you go through this, we say there's a, something essential to bikeness and having two tires. Bye. So two tires, some type of pedaling operation and some bars that connect it. Right? That is a bicycle. That is bicycleness. Now what if we do this exact same thing, but this time we're going to do it to God. Can't draw a picture, can I? Shoot. But when we talk about God, what are, what are the things we want to include in there? Well, he is spirit, and he is eternal. And then we want to hit all the omnis, right? He's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. He's infinite in his power, and his presence, and his knowledge, and his goodness, and his beauty. So we, we would add all these things down here that we would say about God. He, he is these things. Like that, those are, those are it's definitely part of what it means to be God. Now here's the question. If we go through something like, let, let's take his knowledge... And what else? His, his, his presence. He's present all places, all times. What, what is knowledge? What if we take that away? What if God doesn't know everything? Do we still have the God of the Bible? No, we don't. Well, shoot, I guess that's essential. Uh, what if we take away his um, uh, omnipresence? The fact that he can be in all places at all times. What if God was stuck in one space-time place? Would he still ha- be the God of the, of the Bible? No, no. What if we take away his power, his omnipotence, the fact that he can control things? What if we put him on a timeline like he has a beginning and an end? Is he still God? Now, here's this, this funny thing here. As we go through these, there's nothing on the list that we can take off. It's shocking. It's, it's confusing. When we, when we compare ourselves to a bike and we compare ourselves to God in this, in this realm, in this regard, we are a lot more like a bicycle than we are like God. Did you know that? I can change all kinds of things about me and still be a human, but God, there is nothing you can change about him and still be God, fully God, the God that we know, the God that we worship, the God of the scriptures. Amen. So when we talk about this, this is what theologians call the simplicity of God. He is. This is why when we come to the scriptures, what's his name? I am. Well, I am what? I I am. I am. In, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. In our bi- biblical translations... It's Lord, usually all caps in the Old Testament, not all caps in the New Testament. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is Lord. You're being in very nature God. Is there anything that you can take away from him and have him still be God? Nope. Jesus is all of that 
And yet, and yet, and yet, being all of those things, being God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of one being with a Father by whom all things were made, the, the church fathers say in the creed. And we, we, he's all of those things. And yet, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Literally, not something to be grasped. So that the very essence, the very nature of God, and yet, yet, somehow he didn't cling to all of that. What does it mean he did not grasp this, or not, didn't use it for his own advantage? Does that mean that he gave up his godness when he came to earth? So, if, you, uh, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, you will know that Jesus, among other things, has miraculous powers. I mean, everywhere, right? He has powers over the forces of nature, over demons, over sickness, over disease, over everything you can imagine. The man can walk on water. So when, when you go through those stories about Jesus, attested both in the scriptures and outside the scriptures, that he was a man of miracles. And when you think through all the times that Jesus did miracles, how many of those times did he use those miracles to serve himself? How many? Zero. None. Never. If you go through all the stories, all the miracle stories, you lay them all out, you will not see one time where Jesus uses his powers for himself. Now, does that mean he doesn't have powers? No. So, so very beginning of his ministry, where does he say? He's, he, he, he's baptized, and what does God do? The very first thing is God sends him off to the desert to be tempted. The Spirit leads him to the wilderness. And there, literally starving to death, 40 days without any food, Satan shows up and says, hey, why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? He tells him to do that because he knows who Jesus is and he knows that he can do that. But what does Jesus say? Not going to do it. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now you just flip a few chapters over though. What do you see? Jesus looks out over the crowds and sees that they're hungry. So what does he do? He takes the, the loaves and the fish and he multiplies them. Jesus always has the power of being very God, of being I am. The power to create something from nothing. But he does not use them for his own advantage. He never uses his power for himself. He only leverages it for others. So Jesus... Being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. A lot has been, a lot of ink has been spilled over this word. He emptied himself. If you get into the theological debates, it's kenosis. And there's this big debate since the 1800s, this raging, raging theological debate. What did Jesus empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his divine powers, of his divine prerogative? Did he somehow give up his godness when he came to earth? And um, without oversimplifying this, I'm going to try and answer this in one word. No. All right, any other questions? All right, so I, am I oversimplifying this? Yes. And if you're a theology student or so, if you're someone who's sincerely wondering, what does it mean that God could be, there could be a man who's fully God and fully human at the same time in the incarnation? One, join the club. Two, 
I would love, love for you to buy me a cup of coffee and just go, go to town on this. But here's the thing. I, I don't think this is really where we're at. I think the thing we really need to struggle with is, is that when we look at this piece of poetry, this song about Jesus and his greatness and his vastness, the very I am who, who, who does not use his rights for himself, what does that actually mean? Well, I think the text itself explains. He emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant. Do you remember week one? We, uh, I should give my friend's arm. He got the tattoo, doulos. That is this ridiculous word that means servant or slave or someone who's owned by someone else. That's what Jesus became, a doulos. The same word that the Apostle Paul will use for himself. And taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So Jesus, what if you want to know what this means, that Jesus made himself nothing, it's this. Jesus became a human. Everything that humans are, he became. So kidneys and livers and like the gunk that gets in your eye when you, you fall asleep and hair that needs combed and nose that needs blown. All of that stuff, Jesus became that. But he didn't just become that. John chapter 13 says he, he became that and then he took off his outer garments and basically in his underwear he wrapped a towel around himself and he got down and he washed his disciples' feet. Like that is humility. That is beautiful. And so when we talk about what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself, it's this beautiful picture of servanthood, of having all the power in the universe and yet humbling himself out of love for others. But that's, he actually went lower than this. Watch this. And being found in appearance as a man. Have, have you looked at a man lately? Isaiah will actually clarify this for us. He says, Isaiah 53, 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't some Adonis. He wasn't some freak of athletic nature, right? He wasn't, he didn't glow like the pictures will show him glowing. He didn't have a halo. He looked like an average, normal man. No beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Have you looked at an average man lately? You know, the average American man, here's their silhouette. Isn't that pretty? Five, nine, hundred ninety-six pounds, 40-inch waist, and watches two hours and 49 minutes of TV a day. The average American man. That's what Jesus looked like. When they saw him, like, I am a man and I'm embarrassed. Jesus became a man. Just average. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And here's where things completely break away. The Roman view of, of seeking your own honor of having public honor that was, was you deserved public honor if you were a good person. Jesus is going to completely crack that view in half right here. Crucifixion was Rome's ultimate penalty. So they had the, the three big ways of killing people. Woohoo! You could be beheaded, decapitated, burn alive, or crucified. Which do you choose? Crucified was considered the worst, the most shameful. The very word crucifixion, or really cross in Greek, uh, 
according to some, it was actually impolite. Like the type of word you just wouldn't even say at a dinner party. It's kind of dirty. And you know why? Because it's a vivid picture of what Rome would do to anyone who opposed their view of citizenship. The glory of Rome. So the one who rebelled against the Roman way was to be taken to a public place. A shopping mall. A major road. Somewhere where there's going to be a lot of foot traffic and then they'd be stripped naked, beaten, nailed to a hunk of wood, a cross, and then left there to scream and writhe and be cursed at by those passing by until they died. And then their carcass would be left there as a big sign for everyone who passed through that this is what happens to anyone who dares challenge the great idea of Rome. Anyone who dares stand in the way of Caesar who is Lord will be crucified. And you know what the Apostle Paul says? That Jesus took the very thing that they thought proved that he was powerless and showed them what true power is. That Jesus took the very thing that said, the, the very thing that they said, we're so great we can crush you. And being crushed, he showed them what true greatness is. He is crushed. He's ruined. He's destroyed. He's lost. It's humilitas. And less than three decades later, after being crucified on a cross, we see, what, a thousand miles away from Palestine, a group of Roman citizens worshiping this God-man who died on a cross and a revolution's begun. A revolution that's going to upend all of Roman, the whole Roman world. It's going to upend the Roman empire. It's going to upend the Roman mindset. The whole mindset that says you're only great if you're strong, if you're powerful, if you're crushing someone. It's going to undo all of that. And he's going to say there's a place for the brokenhearted, for the meek, for the humble. And because Jesus did this, the Apostle Paul is going to say, therefore, therefore, because he humbled himself, therefore, because he made himself nothing, because he was obedient to death, because he did not exalt himself, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, even Nero's, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess, not that Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see how wonderfully radical and subversive this is? Do you see when you've lived in a world that is controlled by success and wins and strength and self-honor and power and domination, can you see how wonderfully freeing this is? Can you hear the gospel on this? The Apostle Paul just said that everything you've believed about greatness and weakness, about winners and losers, about honor and shame, it's wrong. And Jesus proved it. That the God of the universe, the one who gives value to all things, the one who defines greatness, became like us, willingly humbled himself to the ultimate shame, the cross. And he was crushed for us. And he became poor that we might become rich. And he lost everything for us. And he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus, the rebel, hanging naked, defeated, writhing on the cross. The very symbol of Roman oppression is the very symbol of God's victory. This is true humility, and this is true greatness. The the gospel, according to Caesar, was that through his power and through his wealth and through his strength and through being better and stronger than everyone, he would bring in peace. But this, on the cross, Jesus wins real peace, peace with God. He unleashes the riches that Caesar can never steal. He inaugurates a kingdom that Caesar cannot defeat. He is the true king, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And the point of this passage is not just that you know the philosophy that he is fully God and fully man, though that's crucial. Not just that you can appreciate the technical difficulties between how can you be both God and man at the same time or how could a cross make that difference in my life. It's that we would all sit and worship Jesus because he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we see our Lord nailed to the cross for us, it brings a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves that ends in worship. 